This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, 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 here he is with all of his radiant glory, uh, walked into the door jam and had to take his crown off. I mean, my goodness sakes, the king of history, Dr. History. Good morning. That's King Sir. (laughs) (laughs) Or something. (laughs) You're you're getting a little abrasive here, my friend. Sorry about that. Okay, what's cooking? Well, first of all, you know, we did a uh, a show on Snowshoe Thompson. Uh, Yes. And Jeff, one of my longtime listeners sent me a song written by Tennessee Ernie Ford. It's a song about Snowshoe Thompson. Are you kidding me? No. And it, I'm going to have to send that to you, Zeb. It well, is, I would prefer that you send it instead of singing. No, no not the way Tennessee no. Ernie Ford sings it. Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty cool song. And I want to say hi to uh, Ryan. Thank you for writing. And Larry, who uh, a while back wrote to me and asked to do a show on the Great Diamond Hoax. And that's what we're going to do today. What's that about? Uh, that's what I'm going to tell you. The great diamond hoax. And by the way, these people that are listening, uh, I want to say personally, I've never had a chance to visit with any of them. But God bless you for your thoughts and your uh, concerns about this program and segment with Dr. History. Oh, that yeah, really I, means a lot to both of us. It does. I appreciate the suggestions because I, I've still got a list of uh, suggestions to go I through. get suggestions on my main part of the program every day, like, uh, <laughs> well, come to think of it, I can't mention. No, you can't mention those. (laughs) So, Zeb, the Great Diamond Hoax, and I had never heard of this. It was in 1848. Uh, The rush for gold that began in California in 1848 for silver in Nevada in 1859 filled the West with people hooked on the next big thing, from grubby prospectors washing dirt in a thousand western streams to bankers and speculators in San Francisco, New York, and London. Everyone, it seemed, embraced the idea that the West's mountains and Riverbeds held, held an abundance of mineral wealth just for the taking, besides gold. Now, there was an announcement in the Tucson Weekly, Arizona, in 1870, and it said, quote, We have found it, the greatest treasures ever discovered on the continent, and doubtless the greatest treasures ever witnessed by the eyes of man. And what that refers to is located in the Pyramid Mountains of New Mexico, the it was a new mine dubbed the Mountain of Silver. Bankers hurried in, miners claimed stakes, investors sought capital, uh, surveyors laid out a town, but in the end, they didn't have enough silver for even a single belt buckle. So really? it was a big rush that was nothing. Uh-oh. Okay. So now we're going to go to the diamond rush. Somebody got chased out of Dodge City they over did. that deal. So at about the same time came news of a diamond rush that was happening in South Africa, in India, in Brazil. And this was kind of stoked by tall tales of early 19th century trapper guys like Jim Bridger and Ken Carson about diamonds, rubies, and other gems that could be scooped right off the ground. Dreamers were soon looking for these precious stones in Arizona, New Mexico, uh, because they thought it would be just like South Africa. You got to pause for a drink real quick? Okay, I do. There you go. <laughs> so, 
you know, to, to add a little credibility, an odd diamond or two had actually turned up during the gold rush, especially near Placerville, California. I didn't know. Now, I'm going to show some ignorance here on this. I didn't know that diamonds were found in America. I did not either. And when I go along, you're probably going to see why they're really not. But they did. Evidently, they have found a few. So anyway, in a report on this, uh, you know, a state geologist uh, recommended that, quote, though it may not pay to hunt for diamonds, yet it always pays to pick them up when you happen to see one. Well, duh. (laughs) So here we go. The great diamond hoax. This was a brilliantly acted scam by two Kentucky drifters that would involve, among others, some of California's biggest bankers and businessmen, a former commander of the Union Army, a U.S. representative, leading lawyers on both coasts, and the founder of Tiffany & Company, uh, accurately described by the San Francisco Chronicle as, quote, the most gigantic and bare-faced swindle of the age. That kind of tells it like it is. That's what's coming. Well, swelled by the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, the San Francisco of 1870 had 150 people. One of them was a guy named Philip Arnold. He was from Kentucky. He was a poorly educated former Hatter's apprentice, a Mexican War veteran and Gold Rush 49er. Arnold had spent two decades working in mining operations in the West, made enough money for a few visits back home. In 1870, he was working as an assistant bookkeeper for the Diamond Drill Company. You said he was poorly educated, but he, <laughs> was, he was a bookkeeper. For the Diamond Drill Company. <laughs> now, this is this is important, Zeb. Okay. Okay, a San Francisco drill maker that used diamond-headed bits for a bookkeeper, Arnold, who was only about 40 years old, shows a surprising interest in the industrial grade diamonds that kept the drills running. Uh-huh. You see what's coming. Oh, I do, I do. So by November of that year, Arnold had acquired a bag of uncut diamonds, oh my. presumably taken from his employer, and he mixed them with some garnets, some rubies, sapphires that he likely bought from some Indians in Arizona. He also acquired at this time a good man by the name of John Slack, uh, a partner, and his Actually, it was his older Kentucky or older cousin, also from Kentucky, and like Arnold, he'd fought in the Mexican War and had gone after gold. So the two men hatched a scheme, oh, and here it comes. When you talk about hatching, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Arnold and Slack, remember those two guys? Okay. They turned one night up one night at a guy named Roberts in his San Francisco office. They looked rough, weather beaten. They had a small leather bag. Inside was something of great value, they said, which they would have deposited in the Bank of California, except it was too late in the evening. The two men acted like they didn't want to talk about what was in the sack until Arnold allowed himself to let slip the words, Rough diamonds. Mm. Well, uh, the mumbling, uh, something about Indian territory, and uh, an answer that carried a certain truth, but not in the way Roberts took it. So, the bag of diamonds kind of sunk the hook into this Roberts guy, uh, who seemed very happy to learn about this discovery. Okay, Roberts. So they promised to keep it a profound secret until they could explore the country further and find out more fully the extent of their discoveries. And like many able uh, liars, 
Arnold had a sense of how others would react to his lies. What better way to keep Roberts to spread the word than to make him uh, swear to keep it quiet? Oh, boy. Well, almost before his office door, door shut behind the two miners, Roberts broke his promise. First, he told the founder of the Bank of California, a guy named Ralston, a legendary financier who built hotels and mills. Um, then Roberts got word to a man named Harp Ending. So now we've got Ralston and Harp Ending. Now, Harp Ending swallowed the bait as hungrily as Roberts had. So Harp Ending knew that they got something that would astonish the world. He bit on this really hard. These guys really weren't as dumb as you thought they were. They weren't. Now, Harp Ending made his way to San Francisco as fast as he could get there, ride back there in 1871. In the meantime... Arnold and Slack led Roberts to believe they had made another visit to the diamond field and had returned with 60 pounds of diamonds and rubies said to be worth $600,000. Oh, my. More convinced than ever, Roberts drew others into the trap with this second bigger bag of jewels, which he claimed a local jeweler had authenticated. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. So now you got Roberts, a businessman, you got Ralston, a banker, and you got harp ending who's kind of a, actually a shady businessman mm-hmm. now you add two more guys a guy named lint and another guy named dodge they wanted to get in on this so um arnold and, uh, and slack the two shysters they wanted to get them out of the picture as soon as possible by buying out their interest in this diamond so at first the two spro- prospectors appeared to resist you know uh, they didn't want a quick payday they were playing this pretty good but then Slack asked for $100,000 for his share, 50000 now, and 50000 after the two made what they claimed would be a third visit to the diamond field. So once Slack got his fifty grand, he and Arnold headed off to England to buy some uncut gems. So in July of 1871, they bought $20,000 worth of rough diamonds and rubies and thousands of stones in all. Now... The, uh, upon the pair's return to San Francisco in the summer of 1871, Arnold Slack offered to make one more trip to the diamond field, promising to return with a couple of million dollars worth of stones, which they would allow the businessmen to hold as guarantee of their investment. So off they went to salt the fields. You know what that means. They were depositing things out there that weren't were there. not there. Yeah. Rather, so they were going to salt rather than mine. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
Anyway, <clears throat> so Harp Ending, the shady businessman, met their train in California. Uh, both uh, Harp Ending would later write of this encounter. He said, quote, both uh, Arnold Slack were travel-stained, weather-beaten, and had the general appearance of having gone through a lot of hardship and privation. Slack was asleep, but Arnold sat grimly erect, erect but vigilant, uh, like a vigilant old soldier with a rifle by his side, also a bulky-looking buckskin package. The two claimed they had indeed happened upon a spot, yielding the promised $2 million worth of diamonds, which they said they had divided into two sacks. But while crossing a river in a raft they had oh. built, one pack was lost, yeah. leaving only the one that Harp Ending now saw. So let me ask you a question quickly so I don't get lost here. Okay. Originally, through theft... Of real diamonds, they started this caper. Exactly. Ah. But then when they got the money, they went to England and bought some more rough diamonds. So So they they literally had real diamonds to coerce people into thinking they had a whole bunch more. Okay. So now, at at Oakland, the swindlers handed the pack to Harpending, who gave them a receipt for it, carried it across the bay, and, quote, arrived at San Francisco. My carriage was waiting and drove me swiftly to my home. When the other investors were waiting, he wrote, quote, We did not waste time on ceremonies. A sheet was spread on my billiard table. I cut the elaborate fastenings of the sack and, taking hold of the lower corners, dumped the content. It seemed, harp-ending wrote, like a dazzling, many-colored cataract of light. Cataract of light. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so they decided uh, the other guys they wanted to make sure this was legitimate. So they went to New York City, where you've heard of Tiffany. Oh Tiffany yeah. yeah, jewelries. So evidently they got this uh, th- some of these uh, diamonds, and they went to New York. So they took some of them. Right. Yeah. So uh, anyway, Tiffany looked them over, and he said, "Gentlemen, these are beyond question precious stones of enormous value." Now, he took them back to his shop, and he valued them at uh, worth 150000 or uh, up to $1.5 million. Oh, my. That turns out, Zeb, Tiffany did not have that much experience with uncut diamonds. Oh, boy. So he said they were good. Well, not necessarily. Uh-huh. Well, Arnold quickly got another 100000 from the investors and went back to London where he bought some more diamonds to bring back. Now, at this time, uh, they hired a mining engineer named Jannon, Arnold and Slack, uh, Jannon, Dodge, and Harp Ending. So all these guys were going to go out to where the diamonds were found. So at this point, nobody had actually seen the location. No, no. So now they're headed out. So uh, there are six of them, okay, including this uh, mining engineer named Jannon. Okay. All right? So he's in the group, but he's not one of the investors. I got you. Okay. Now, Harpending noted that, quote, the party became cross and quarrelsome. The six men finally reached the salted May. Well, what happened was uh, Slack kept leading them around for about four days, like as if he couldn't find the area. So after about four days, they were not very happy with this. Now, why would he want to do that? <laughs> just just to keep it a secret, kind of, I guess, or hmm. keep him confused. So, finally, uh, they got to the place, and they started to look for diamonds. And after a few minutes, somebody yelled, 
uh, something and they held up something glittering in his hand for more than an hour. Diamonds were being found with occasional rubies, emeralds, and sapphires. Now, does that sound suspicious? Suspicious a little uh, bit? Yeah. Okay. Especially when they had a tag on them. <laughs> <laughs> Within two days, even the mining engineer, Janin, uh, decided he was going to buy $1,000 worth of shares at $10 a share. And so he jumped on the bandwagon. So, in fact, Janin actually went back and uh, took out his claim for 3,000 acres around this whole area. So I know we're running out of time, Zeb. I've got to get through this. So anyway, uh, they they kept the investors going, and uh, they figured that there was, you know, like... Eight million, well, not eight million dollars today, today, but like five hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of diamonds and jewels that were out there. Now, uh, so Slack was, uh, you know, in his concluding report, Janin, the, the mining guy, said wrote that the proposed one hundred thousand shares of stock were easily worth forty dollars each, and he would soon thereafter sell his shares at that price. Netting thirty thousand dollars. Now in eighteen seventy one, that was that's a, lot, that's a of money. lot of money, and that was above his twenty five hundred dollar fee. And he became the only non swindler to profit from the scam. Really, and you'll see what I'm talking about. When the rest of the party finished up at the mesa where they had were finding the diamonds, they left slack behind to guard the site. But the two men uh, didn't like each other, and with it couple of days they took off so slack was never heard from again arnold collected another 150,000 that had been promised him from the inspection and then quickly sold 300,000 more in stock so now he's up to 450,000 uh plus the 100,000 he got before now so now he's taking in 550,000 in investment money from okay. from these investors, all right, uh, about eight million today. Ooh. So now he had more shares coming to him, but he must have thought that his luck would only take him so far. He already moved his family back to Kentucky from San Francisco, and by the time the affair was exposed, he had left town. Now, what finally led to the collapse of this whole thing was that Janin was on a train with a guy named Clarence King. Now, Clarence King was a government surveyor, and he had surveyed 80,000 acres in the area where the diamonds were supposedly found. Now, King and his men decided that they'd better inspect inspect these diamond fields as soon as possible. So they're thinking, we've surveyed this. We didn't find any diamonds. So King noticed when they finally got to this area where the diamonds were found, that whenever he he found a diamond, he did find some. But he also found a dozen rubies, uh, kind of too neat a scheme for a natural deposit of diamonds. The men also realized that the stones were found only in disturbed ground and that there were footprints all around this area where the diamonds and the sapphires were found. Oh, boy. Another interesting thing. They found diamonds in some anthills. <laughs> okay. So the only way they could have got in there is if somebody put a diamond on there and then pushed it down in with a stick. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, King came back, and uh, he went to California to the investors, and he said, quote, the diamond fills were utterly valueless, and that the directors had been the victims of an unparalleled fraud.
So the two guys, uh, help me with their names again. I forgot. Slack and Arnold. Oh, they got away scot free. Pretty well, uh, pretty much, but but almost. Let got me tell you what left. happened. Today. Okay, all right. Got to have another drink. <laughs> That's water, folks. It's water. <laughs> it is. So Slack, John Slack, was assumed to have either fled the country or died soon after leaving the diamond fields. But in 1967, a guy named Bruce Woodard uh, wrote a book about this, about the diamond hoax. And in his book, uh, he says that Slack uh, had taken a job building caskets in St. Louis Eventually, according to the writer of this book, Slack moved to White Oaks, New Mexico, where he became an undertaker, living alone until his death at age 76. In 1896, he left behind an estate of $1,600. Wow. Okay, now remember, Slack only got 50000 of that original yeah. uh, investment, so he didn't. Yeah get a lot. Well, yeah. he did, but, you know. Okay, so the last guy, here's what happened to him. In July of 1872, Arnold bought a two-story brick house in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, moved his family into it. After acquiring some 500 acres nearby, all of the property was in his wife, Mary's name. He bred horses, sheep, and pigs. A grand jury in San Francisco indicted Arnold and Slack for fraud. Arnold answered the news of the indictments by telling the Louisville paper that, quote, I have employed counsel myself, a good Henry rifle. But he eventually did settle out of court for $150,000, his only acknowledgement, and denied that he had planted any diamonds. In 1873, Arnold became a banker himself by putting an unknown amount of money into an Elizabethtown bank that had temporarily closed its doors. In 1878, uh, a quarrel with another banker in town led to a shootout that injured three bystanders. Arnold took a shotgun blast in the shoulder, but was recovering when six months later he contracted pneumonia and at age 49 died, although he left his family comfortably off. Several hundred thousand dollars have never been accounted for. Holy smoke. So they pulled it off, basically. They pulled it off. These shysters who... You know, at first you think that they're not very smart, but... You said they were uneducated, they basically. Were, but they're pretty they, doggone smart. <laughs> but they figured some things out. Yeah. I mean, it, it was... And neither one really got to reap the rewards of what well, they did. Well, I think, I think Arnold did, because, you know, he still left uh, uh, his family with, you know, several hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah. So, you Which know, today would... Oh, yeah. You know, that'd be six million or oh, eight or something. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Almost like you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the story of the Great Diamond Field. And this all took place in what state? California, right? Uh, yeah, that's where... Uh, but, but, you know, when they went to look for the diamonds, they were up near Wyoming somewhere. That's what I was thinking you yeah, said, yeah. And so it's it, it kind of... It's almost like they decided, okay, we'll make up a place in Wyoming or I something see. to... Where we think. So I want to thank Larry, uh, who gave me this idea and sent me the information. So thanks, Larry, for the help on this on this story. Well, you did it again, Dr. History. Thank you for yeah. another outstanding story. And uh, now I'll go home and count your diamonds. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll only, that won't take very long. Okay. <laughs> and only one finger. See you next Maybe Tuesday. Two. God bless you, man. <laughs> Dr. You. History on Zeb at the Ranch. Thank you very much. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.